0: love each other
1: 20 years ago or nearly 20 years ago Melissa who just read and I were buying a house on a street called Church Rise in a town called Chessington south of London this house truly deserved the name a project Uh, it had uh, no central heating it hadn't had heating actually for about 12 years It had woodchip on the walls and dangerous polystyrene tiles on the ceiling. And the carpet was a sort of sticky brown that's usually reserved for old pubs and music venues. Two young men were living there in conditions that could only be described as a squat. And the house was a wreck. And that's why we were able to afford it. But Melissa, as is her wont, had a vision. And actually, in time, she was proved to be right. It was a good decision. But this house, and it's hard to describe it at this moment but the uh, the back garden was so overgrown that you couldn't see the end of the garden which was about 60 feet long uh, it, the back garden was so overgrown in fact that it blocked the light out from the back of the house And this was principally because of two enormous Leylandi fir trees that had gone completely out of control and were towering over everything else in the neighbourhood. And these two trees eventually we had to fell. And what we discovered when we felled the trees and hacked through the undergrowth in this sort of suburban jungle was that at the back of the garden was a shed, which we didn't know existed, and also the remains of a greenhouse, a ruined greenhouse, but it had in it a wild vine. Now, when I heard that there was a vine in our greenhouse, I was momentarily excited at the thought of us growing our own grapes. But then I saw the vine and I was disappointed. This vine was spoiled. In fact, it was ruined because it had never ever been tended and pruned and dressed. It was straggly and unproductive. It got in the way of its own light. It wasn't fruitful. So it never really produced many grapes that produced a few and they were very poor. Now, when we open John 15, we find ourselves in the middle of one of the most intimate scenes in the entire ministry and life of Jesus. We're reading a personal account, an eyewitness account of what unfolded on the night of the Passover meal. This is like walking on holy ground. Now, back in chapter 13, We've read about the meal and we've we've seen an astonishing scene where Jesus took it upon himself to take the role of the lowest slave in the household and washed the feet of his disciples, something that no other teacher in the ancient world had ever done. And then Jesus started to speak and to teach. And first of all, he said some shocking things. He predicted his betrayal, that one of them present was going to betray him and that he would be killed. And then we read of the subtle departure of Judas Iscariot, who went out into the night, fulfilling what Jesus had predicted. Then Jesus, as it were, drew in the disciples closer and began to teach them in a more intense and focused way than he'd ever done before. He gave them what he called was the new command, the essence, the number one lesson of how they were to live, which was that they were to love one another as he had loved them. And the extent of his love is seen in his willingness to go to the cross. And sacrifice himself for them. Then in chapter 14. Jesus speaks to his disciples. Who are obviously quite distressed by all that's going on. And quite shocked. And he spoke words of comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled he said. I go ahead of you to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so I would have told you. In my father's house are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. I will come back for you. And having spoken this promise of the future. And of a guarantee uh, place in the world to come. Jesus then taught about who he would send once he'd gone to be with God the Father. He talks about the Holy Spirit, the advocate, one who would come and be a comforter and stand alongside and would help to spread Jesus' word and his community throughout the world. Now this section is sometimes called the Farewell Discourses. Uh, Jesus is saying goodbye here and here in chapter 15 We're now discovering a whole new dimension of what Jesus wants to impress on his disciples. Remember, he's about to leave them. He's saying goodbye. He knows that the clock is ticking and time is short. So he's impressing on them some truths of critical importance. And what we learn here in this reading is how Jesus wants us to live. How Jesus Christ wants every follower of his to live. And the key is that we have got to remain in Jesus and be very fruitful. Notice in chapter 15 how Jesus uses a single organic, beautiful illustration. It's the image of a vine and its branches and its fruit. He introduces it in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. In verse 5, he points to the disciples and says you are the branches so so far we've got Jesus is the vine the, the trunk the essence of this plant but we're growing off it like branches coming off the vine and verses two and six combine a mixture of warning and promise for the branches verse two says that the father cuts off every branch in him that bears no fruit but every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So there's the warning, the fruitless branches, the dead branches could be cut off, will be cut off, but the fruitful ones actually will be pruned to become even more fruitful. And then in verse 6, that warning and promise is here again, if you don't remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. That's a That's quite a terrifying image. But then straight away in verse seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And this is to my father's glory. So that verse eight is holding out a fantastic potential for our lives. Your life, however ordinary and dull and boring it may seem to you, however inconsequential it may be in the eyes of the world, can bring glory to God. And actually, you will be made more glorious through that. So this structure here in this passage is a description of the Christian life, the life of faith. In terms of a vine, verses 1 to 8, and then verses 9 to 17 is an unpacking of that image and an applying of it. Now, I have to say that this has been an incredibly difficult passage to study and to prepare to speak on because I think it's so it's so dense, there's so much in it, and when you unpack it, it's like opening a Pandora's box and loads of things come out and you can't put them back in together. There are A lot of the language is quite conceptual, although it's simple. It's full of quite abstract words and terms. And you may have noticed, as Melissa was reading, that it's kind of circular. It feels that Jesus says one thing and then he comes round and he visits it again, says something a bit different, circles around and comes back. And I think this is a reflection of the way that Jesus actually taught and spoke much of the time. One of my colleagues at Grace Church, Joel Madhur, who's going to uh, pray for us later with his wife, Lana, Uh, Joel talks about how Western thinking and Western communication and speech, including things like sermons, is very linear. We tend to introduce what we're going to say and we kind of go A, B, C, and then we conclude. Whereas Joel says that in India, his home country and in other parts of the East, people's thinking and speech is often much more circular. And so these two worlds, the West and the East, Think and speak and communicate very differently and I feel like and I haven't read this in any scholarship that when Jesus is preaching here and and teaching it feels very eastern very circular and so for those of us in the west we do find this harder to relate to but we're going to do the best we can today this is how Jesus wants you to live Christian brother sister he wants you to remain in him and be very fruitful if you think about it that actually is tremendously exciting this means that being a Christian is not a boring life where you have less fun than other people it's not a restricted life where you have to keep some old-fashioned moral duties in exchange for a place in heaven it's not a weary life where you serve jesus and you sort of do your bit but you slowly exhaust yourself being a christian according to jesus is about being fully alive about being fruitful being truly human about being someone who is vital and renewed and growing vitally connected to god so that the life of god who is the source of all life is literally pulsing through your soul so that you constantly grow and change. And are transformed and you yourself help to fill the world around you with goodness and light and beauty and truth. What Jesus calls fruit. So I've tried to summarise this message today with one sentence. Uh, So I haven't got sort of uh, three points or anything like that. I've got this one sentence that I'm going to give you now. And those of you take notes, you might want to write it down. It's got about 13 or 14 words. And this will be our key sentence Remain in Jesus by word, prayer and obedience, and you will be very fruitful. Remain in Jesus by word, prayer and obedience, and you will be very fruitful. Firstly, remain in Jesus. Now, when I think back to that wild vine, which we discovered at the end of our garden all those years ago, you know you could tell by looking at it even if you weren't a gardener that it was unhealthy as soon as you saw it that's why it was so disappointing there were some branches on this vine that were just clearly dead they were brown and shriveled up they were so withered i don't know if they could have ever carried a single grape but there were actually many other branches on this vine that were alive. They were the ones that were green and you could tell that they had some life in them and even some of them did have grapes. Now, this is the point of Jesus teaching here in this passage. Remain in him. Stay connected to the source of life. No branch, if you think about it, generates life from itself. Its life only comes from being connected in a healthy way to the trunk. Of course, that's not just true for vines. It's true for other plants, too. Every branch is totally dependent for its life and its health and its fruitfulness on the vine. So a living branch really is in the vine. And the life of the vine really is pulsing through that branch. So the vine really is in the branch running through it. Now, Jesus has chosen this image of the vine and the branches quite deliberately because Jesus knew his Bible. Jewish readers... The people who heard this originally would well know that in the Old Testament, the vine was a picture of Israel, God's people. Psalm 80 is one of the places that really goes big on this. It says to God that you transplanted a vine from Egypt, talking about when God brought the Israelites out from slavery. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches, its branches reached as far as the sea, that's the Euphrates, it shoots as far as the river, sorry the sea is the Mediterranean, the river is the Euphrates, but that Psalm 80 continues that this mighty wonderful vine that God had brought out of Egypt and planted in the promised land is cut down and burned with fire, the walls are broken down, wild animals, wild boars come in and sort of ravage it and eat it and insects cling to it and the psalm is saying that's what happened to israel god's people wrecked now why did god allow this to happen the story of the old testament is the story of faithlessness and disobedient god's people although they knew his law and his guidance and his teaching though they had the prophets to encourage them and warn them sinned against him over And over again, they forsook the true God and pursued false idols. And to God, this was a deeply personal betrayal uh, on the level of an adultery. This was because they tried to go it alone and create their own DIY religion that served them and used God when and where they wanted him. So most of the time in the Old Testament, when the symbol of the vine is used, for Israel, it's talking about Israel as faithless, a people who were destined for punishment and judgment from God. But now Jesus reclaims the image. He, he says in verse 1, I am the true vine. He is the true Israel, the true people of God. And so those who are in him connected to this vine will be different. They won't be faithless. They will be full of faith. They will rely on Jesus. They'll be constantly dependent on him. They will keep on receiving their life from him and not allow the poison and the toxins of false idols to pervert their lives. And this is a command, you know, to every single Christian. Look at verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit. Unless you remain in me. We've got to remain in Jesus. But you know the alarming thing about this picture. Is that there are branches that look like they're connected to the vine. But they're really dead. And Jesus says they're actually useless. And they will be picked up and burned. Now there was a chilling example of a person just like this. Very close at hand. Remember Judas Iscariot not long before, had gone out to betray Jesus. Judas really looked like he was part of the team. He'd been on the journey. He'd been sitting under Jesus' teaching. He'd been a key part of the close disciple group. He was so trusted. He even was the one that looked after the money. But Judas, although he looked the part, was actually spiritually dead. It's very sobering. And you know, there's a strand of teaching in the Bible, in the New Testament, that shows men and women with some degree of connection to Jesus' church, who maybe know a lot about the Bible and sometimes act in very religious ways, who eventually reveal that the life of Jesus has never been in them. So I have to ask, what kind of branch are you? Are you a living one or dead? And the answer is to look at whether we're really living in Jesus, whether we're remaining in him right now. This word remain can also be translated to abide or stay or have your settled dwelling. So let me ask, are you a person who lives with Jesus Christ day by day, conscious of him at all times in your heart, or are you more like a temporary house guest who drops in every now and then? You know, you're, you're sort of with Jesus on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week, you're with other people. You know, there's a world of difference between a child who is part of the family and lives in the house as a family member and somebody who uses the house as an Airbnb and just comes and goes when they pleases. Are you living in Jesus? Are you spiritually connected to him so that his life flows through you and if you are then Jesus speaks to you kindly today and says remain in me don't let anything swerve you from that path even though it will be difficult at times it will be challenging and you may have to walk it in great pain remain in him remain in him stay living with Jesus connected to him and let me say uh Dear friend, if you realise that you're not really part of this vine, then today is the day to do something about it. Don't leave it. Today is the day to to cry out to Jesus, to ask him to change your heart, to accept him by faith so that you will rest in him and receive his life and be born again in him. And perhaps that's something that would be good for you to talk to a Christian friend about and to pray with them. So the first aspect of this is remain in Jesus. And if remaining in Jesus is so important, as it evidently is, it's a matter of life and death, then how do we do it? What steps do we need to take practically so that we can be people who remain in Jesus? How do we remain in him? And here's the second part of that theme sentence by word, prayer and obedience. Remain in Jesus by word, prayer and obedience. So these three things are all in this passage and they're sort of scattered through it. And I'm going to circle around and have to deal with them quite briefly. And I'm sorry about that, but hopefully it'll be helpful to you. Firstly, you remain in him by word. Look at verse three. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Jesus has spoken his teaching, his words. They've heard it. They've accepted it. And that, he says, has made them clean clean you see Jesus word is how you became a Christian in the first place it's the only way anyone ever does by hearing his word in the bible and responding to it in faith Romans 10 verse 17 says faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ Jesus says here in this wonderful reassurance actually If you've heard his word and believed it, you are already clean. His word has cleansing power in the lives of people. It changes you. That's how we begin the journey of faith. And so to keep the life of Jesus pulsing on through our heart and our soul and our mind, what are we supposed to do? Keep in the word. Have a look at verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you you this is how we remain in Jesus the first way is by letting his words remain in us dwell in us live in us we don't just read and study and discuss and meditate on the bible because it's interesting and we certainly don't do it just because we feel we ought to otherwise we'll be bad Christians we read and digest the bible because without these words we will die we need them one of the disciples once blurted out, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's our connection to Jesus. Our lifeline is his word. Don Carson, a very fine scholar and commentator on John, says this Such words must so lodge in the disciple's mind and heart that conformity to Christ obedience to Christ is the most natural thing in the world so let me ask are you letting Jesus words remain in you now in some traditions and it's a helpful practice we talk about the morning quiet time and that that is a very helpful practice but whether or not you're good at getting up early in the morning and having your quiet time the, the issue really is, are you letting Jesus' words remain in you? Is his word your constant companion? Is it in your mind and in your heart and dwelling in you in such a way that it's constantly changing you? If not, then you're cutting yourself off from the first source of life. Remain in Jesus through word. Secondly, through prayer. Prayer. Now, again, this is not dull religious observance, rote praying, going through the motions, because you have to. I was once in a... Religious service where a group of men rattled through the Lord's Prayer three times so fast that I I found it hard to believe any of them had, had time to think about it. They said the prayer, but nobody really prayed. I have heard Christians and people from other faiths praying thoughtlessly because they knew they had to say their prayers. And I'll be honest, I've done it myself. But this kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about here is not done for the sake of it it is genuine it is deep it is really a constant connection with god down in your heart and soul and even i think in your subconscious such prayer is going on all day long and it's going on when you wake in the night now there will be formal times when christians ought to pray say their prayers and perhaps it would be good if, if you're not in the habit of doing this to just to put some good habits in place. It'll help you to pray in the morning, to pray at meal times, to give thanks for every meal you receive, to pray before you go to bed, to make sure you're there when the church, gathered church, is praying. We at Grace have a, a once a month corporate prayer meeting. Everybody's involved. And every week in our life groups, we pray to some extent. These are things we ought to be doing. And if you have a family, And you live with a family, then pray with your family. These are formal times. But you know, as a sunflower, and there are some scattered around in South Manchester. A sunflower turns its face towards the sun all day long and follows the course of the sun in the sky. So prayer is the soul's turning towards God. As we turn our heart and our face toward him all day long. Bringing the whole of our lives before him. Constantly casting our anxieties on Him, knowing that He cares for us. Whenever we think of another's needs, praying for them. I was driving to the office this morning to finish my sermon. I drove past a street where some dear friends lived, live, and prayed for them. Just at that moment, this is prayer. It's how we remain in Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul was one of the hardest working Christians who ever lived. Maybe the, the most hard working. The things he went through for the kingdom of Jesus are absolutely extraordinary. In one place he writes to a church that he he could have asked them to pay for his support, but he decided not to so that he wouldn't be a burden on them. So he worked night and day. And his trade was a tent maker. He worked with his own hands, could repair and make tents to, to earn money. So he was working all night on tents and working all day in the church. And yet Paul says that he prays constantly. How can he pray constantly when he's so busy? The answer is, it's going on all the time. And Jesus says here in verse 7, If his words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What he means is that your prayers will be so aligned to the mind and will of God that you will be asking God to do what he wants to do already. Such prayers will not be self-centred. They will be abundantly answered. Remain in Jesus. How? Through word, through prayer, and thirdly, through obedience. The third way we remain in Jesus is by being obedient to him. We know his word. We understand what he wants from us. We live with him in prayer. We're in constant dialogue. So we will also want to obey him and what he wants in our lives day by day. And verses 9 to 10 make this remarkable promise. Here's what it says. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. (laughs) Now, that's the most incredible sentence in the universe. As much as the father in heaven has loved Jesus, that's how much Jesus has loved you. Do you realize that? Now remain in my love. And straight away, he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love Jesus was supremely obedient to God the Father he he did he only did what God told him to do and he never did anything God didn't tell him to do he never disobeyed God and Jesus says that's the way to keep my commands as perfectly as that and if you do that then you will remain in my love now I think obedience in our contemporary culture and actually obedience in to a certain extent in church life this drifts in is the idea that obedience is somehow a kind of a bad thing restrictive uh, and what we really need is to be free and we're also afraid sometimes that insisting on obedience in the Christian life will somehow introduce a note of legalism whereas we know we're saved by grace alone through faith alone absolutely right but as Martin Luther said faith we're saved by faith alone and faith is never alone always accompanied by good deeds you see obeying Jesus is not like obeying an unpleasant boss or a government guideline that you're not sure is that sensible or a hard father who takes your joy away and crushes your spirit look at how Jesus Christ describes you verse 14 you are my friends if you do what I command I no longer call you servants Because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from the Father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Jesus Christ, the only son of God the Father, the eternal one, calls you a friend. Now, this is not a reciprocal friendship in the sense that Jesus calls us friends and we do what he commands and then we call him a friend and he does what we want. No, no, no. He's still our Lord, our saviour, our king. But he bestows on us this incredible honour of calling you a friend because he has revealed to you what his father's business is. We have a, a greater degree of revelation from anyone in the Old Testament And because of that, Jesus has given us the the privilege of friendship, friendship with God. You see, verse 11 teaches as well that obeying him is the only way that our lives actually will be filled with joy. I've told you this, he says, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus is saying, I want you to be as happy as you can possibly be. I want your joy to be like my joy. And Jesus was overflowing with joy. I want your joy to be complete and full. And so the the way for you to be really joyful is to be really, really obedient to God. Obeying God is the shortest shortcut, the surest way, the guaranteed path to a joyful life. And Christian friend, I may say this to you now. If you are currently not experiencing God's joy in any way, it would be a good time today to examine yourself and see if there is an area of disobedience in your life that is actually cutting off the joy of jesus from coming into your experience sin always makes us miserable sin is ultimately unhappy and so if there's a place like that cut it off repent of it start afresh and the joy the tap of joy will be open flowing into your experience again disobeying god although it may lead to short-term pleasure is eventually always miserable So back to our theme sentence and I'm nearly done. Remain in Jesus by word, prayer and obedience and you will be very fruitful, very fruitful. Now, I started this sermon with the story of our wild vine in our ruined house on Church Rise in Chessington. But, you know, about 20 minutes drive away from that house was a very different vine. This vine is in Hampton Court Palace, one of the greatest British Palaces. It's it's known for its many chimneys. It was built by a Cardinal Wolsey, and then pinched off him by King Henry VIII. At Inhampton Court Palace is the largest grapevine in the world. This vine was planted in 1768 by a famous gardener, whose name was Lancelot Capability Brown. And Capability Brown was was an iconic gardener. He planted this vine, and it has grown since 1768. And the way this vine works is that they have a a house that's had to get bigger and bigger as the vine has grown and a field outside where all the roots go under. And they have this enormous vine and you can go and see it if you're ever down in London. The vine keeper is now a lady called Jill Strudwick. And you can see a really nice short video of Jill talking about the vine and showing it through different seasons. And you can see her actually kind of pruning it and taking off grapes and looking after it. Uh, on the Historic Royal Palace's website, you can see Jill describing the life of the vine and, the, and pruning the vine. Now, this vine, the grape vine it's called, the average crop of fruit each year is 600 pounds of grapes. That's 600 pounds. Those of you dealing new money, that's 272 kilos of grapes. And You can buy them down there in the Hampton Court shop. One vine, produces 600 pounds of fruit every year without fail but some years it produces more. It had a bumper crop in autumn 2001 when it produced 845 pounds. That's nearly 400 kilos of fruit. Now that is a lot of fruit. Beautiful black dessert grapes and let me say I want my life to be like that not like the vine that was at the end of our garden. So what's the fruit? Jesus doesn't say in the passage. He just says, remain in me and you will bear much fruit. But, you know, we would be unwise to reduce the idea of fruit to one thing. Elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, Paul describes the Holy Spirit's presence in our life as producing the fruit of the Spirit. And he, he describes nine characteristics that all together form in our character, As the Holy Spirit works in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is all fruit of the Holy Spirit. Every good thing in our character is fruit. But also fruit is seen in our good deeds, our actions of love toward other people. That's fruit as well. And so is our witness to the watching world. At the end of this text, Jesus says, I've appointed you, chosen you, that you might go and bear fruit. And that going is usually associated with people speaking about Jesus to those who don't know him and witnessing to him and other people becoming Christians and following Jesus as well. That also is fruit, our character, our good deeds and our witness. But notice, if you want to bear a lot of fruit, What do you need? It's there in verse two. And it's there a bit later. Let me read verse two again as we close. He, this is the father, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Do you want to be pruned? (laughs) Let's be honest. The idea of pruning is very painful, yet the vine trimmer, in this case God the Father, has to do it. It's necessary to keep a vine growing and healthy because the pruning cuts away dead branches and any superfluous growth. It clears away uh, things that would stop the vine being maximally fruitful and not getting to the light. It makes it more productive and healthy and happy and God's work of pruning in our lives he says here is going to happen to every branch that does bear fruit so if you are a fruitful Christian God will be pruning you at some point it's necessary pruning uh, clears away bad habits clears away burns away our sins our impure motives our attitudes things in our lives that Maybe okay, but actually getting in the way of us being fruitful. So, friends, let's be ready for the Father's pruning knife in our lives. If you're going through a difficult time at the moment, can I ask you to reflect as we pray in a moment? Is God pruning me? Is he using hard and difficult things actually to make you more fruitful? Some things need to be cut away. And it's an intimate process. Tom Wright, the uh, New Testament scholar, professor in St. Andrews University, writes these words. The vine dresser is never closer to the vine, taking more thought over its long term health and productivity than when he has his knife in his hand. Let's pray. Remain in Jesus by word, prayer, and obedience, and you will bear much fruit. Lord, we've had a lot to think about today. We marvel at your words. We've really only skimmed the surface, but you have so much to teach us. And you will have touched many of us in some part of our lives today that needs addressing. But it's not being addressed with harshness or the cold eye of a critic or the unfair and imbalanced disproportionate criticism of an enemy. It's being addressed by a father who loves us, who has the pruning knife in his hand and a saviour who has given his life for us and so wants to live in us. Help us to hear you and to put in place and change those things we need and to be encouraged that by the power of your spirit we, even we, can bear much fruit. Amen.